0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation today, The Triumph of the Lamb, with a message found in Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. A message entitled Where the Glory Resides. Let's join Dr. Neufeld now.
1: A number of years ago when one of the teams who were expected to do very well in the World Cup of Soccer actually lost early, it was said that the team had disgraced their nation. And that got me thinking. I can't imagine that succeeding or failing in a sporting event is any measure of a great or glorious nation. That same nation whose team lost also was a nation whose slums and squalor are a disgrace where corruption in politics was commonplace and where the middle class hardly existed. In its place were the very few who were rich and the masses who were poor. No victory on the football pitch made one bit of difference as to whether that nation was great or not. Greatness lay in another place. You know, throughout history, nations and empires have claimed the title of greatness. Some claim greatness because they have eliminated a great deal of crime. Others because they have a great economy or a powerful military. Others because of the contributions that they have brought to the entire human race, and still others because of the opportunities they bring to their own citizens. But in each case, nations all want to be known for the glory. The ancient Roman Empire had its fair share of glory. Their armies defeated armies larger than themselves, both through their strategy and through their discipline. They built an empire as well as cities that still stand today. Roman building and engineering was legendary, as many of their roads, waterways, and buildings still stand to this day. The Romans introduced an alphabet which much of the world still uses today. Their system of law formed a basis that we take for granted today. Theirs was a glorious empire. But, of course, Rome had a dark side. Indeed, the Roman Empire was founded on blood and was maintained by demanding ever more blood. Her economy was funded by the plunder of nations. Indeed, they literally slaughtered their opposition and stole their resources. The slave trade subjugated a vast number of people. She entertained her masses by killing men in an arena for sport. Many of her senators became increasingly corrupt, and her emperors were known for their cruelty. Tiberius was suspicious of anyone around him. Nero was a madman who killed anyone in his way and is known for burning Rome and blaming it on the Christians. He murdered his stepbrother, his wife, his lover, and even his own mother. And Domitian, the emperor who ruled after Nero and who was the emperor when John wrote Revelation, was a moral reprobate. When his brother became ill, he left him for dead. When Cornelia, the chief vestal virgin, was found with a lover, he had her buried alive. He raped his niece and then forced her to abort his child. And, of course, he demanded that he be called Lord and God. You know, such was the dark side of the glory of Rome. So when we encountered the seven churches in Revelation, we encountered churches of Jesus that were under siege, Some believers were killed, and others were threatened with economic reprisals. The churches struggled with the sexual perversion that had become rampant throughout the Roman world, and some, because of the pressure to worship Caesar as Lord and God, were in danger of denying their public profession of faith. It might have seemed to the Christians in the Roman province of Asia that Rome had the power and the splendor and the glory. And the Christians were but a beleaguered, struggling, powerless minority. But things were not as they seemed. And so after messages to the seven churches had been delivered, John next shares a reality that must truly have brought everything into focus for these churches. His vision of the throne room of God is utterly overwhelming. When we read it, we need to let our minds imagine the scene that John is describing indeed. As we read Revelation chapter 4, we're left to contemplate the vast difference between the glory of Rome and the glory of God and of His kingdom. But before we read Revelation 4, 1 to 6, I wish to relay a story that I think might be of some help here. Some time ago, a well-known pastor told of a season in his ministry when he decided to preach a series on the attributes of God without even trying to make application to people's lives. He simply wanted to help his people see the splendor, the glory, and the loveliness of their God. He related that the response was incredible. Indeed, one couple informed him that the series on the nature of God had healed their marriage. When he asked how, they told him that for the first time in their lives, they got their eyes off of their own problems and saw something greater than themselves. And that's exactly what's going on in Revelation chapter 4. The beleaguered churches in the Roman province of Asia needed to see something greater than their struggle with the imperial might of Rome. They needed to see the imperial might of the altogether glorious God. And we, like them, need exactly the same vision. So let's read Revelation 4, 1 to 6a. After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and the one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Many a Bible teacher has pondered the phrase, I will show you what must take place after this. And then in the next two chapters, that is, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, we're not given a vision of the future at all but rather a vision of the throne room of God. But in truth, those words found in Revelation 4 verse 1 are actually a repeat of the words found in Revelation 1 verse 1, the very first sentence of the book. There we read, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then, rather than launching into a vision of the future, the book gives us a picture of the glorified Jesus and then his message to the seven churches. But of course, eventually, Revelation does tell us what will take place. But when we come to Revelation 4 verse 1, we should notice that the emphasis here is on the word must, what must soon take place. That is to say, the vision of the future that Revelation presents us with, including the horrifying rise of the beast and so forth, is all under the determined rulership of the one who's seated on the throne. No vision of the future is ever comprehensible if we fail to see the one who reigns on his throne in heaven. So let's enter into what John saw. First, he says that he saw a door standing open in heaven. Now, clearly he sees a portal inviting him into the very dwelling place of God. You know, sometimes Bible teachers are going to ask whether John was, in fact, taken up into heaven or whether the words in verse 2, that he says he was in the Spirit, indicate that he actually remained on Patmos but was given a vision by the Holy Spirit. And I don't actually think it matters. I notice that the words, I was in the Spirit, occur four times in the book of Revelation. The first time in chapter 1, verse 10, was immediately prior to the vision of the glorified Jesus, and so... Was Jesus really there on Patmos, or was it merely a vision? Well, I have no reason for believing anything other than that Jesus literally arrived in his glorified form on Patmos. So I think that the words, in the Spirit, are meant not only to signal that John is shown a spiritual reality that he could not otherwise have seen, but that he was given by the Holy Spirit insight into what the vision actually means. And so because as we read Revelation, we see John going to heaven and then back to earth and then back to heaven, I don't think that we have to answer whether he simply saw the reality in the Spirit or whether his body actually left Patmos and and traveled to heaven. But of this we can be sure. What he describes actually exists. The fact is that heaven is a very real place, that it is a genuine physical existence, now, it is true that Solomon, when he prayed his prayer of dedication for the, for the newly built temple in Jerusalem, said, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So it's true that heaven cannot contain God, for he is spirit and is present to all spaces at all times. But in what John sees, the invisible God has manifested his presence in a unique way in heaven and that he has done so from a throne. Imagine that the invisible God who fills all things with his presence, a God so great that all space is insufficient for him, has chosen for the sake of his glory to create a place where his glory would be made known in a way that fully displays his majesty. And that is what John saw.
0: Are you interested in becoming an integral part of the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team? Well, we have an opening for an audio production coordinator. This position takes primary responsibility for audio production, editing, distribution, and administration of all of our ministry audio programs. If you're looking for a career opportunity and have a heart for the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again and in doubt, consider sending in your resume today. And can we ask our listening audience to pray for this position and the entire ministry team that works tirelessly to ensure all of our resources and programs are made available every day. For more information about this position, visit backtothebible.ca and click on Careers, Or send in your resume for the position of audio production manager at hr at backtothebible.ca.
1: When John tells us that he saw in heaven a throne and the one who is seated upon it, you know, it's fascinating to me that he then neither describes the throne nor the one who is on it. All that he tells us is that he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. See, now our problem in reading this is that we can't be sure whether, for instance, the jasper that's described here is the same stone that we call a jasper today. So today, a jasper is a polished stone that has a number of colors in it, and it's neither translucent nor transparent. See, our problem is that that doesn't seem to fit the description of it found in the book of Revelation. See, if we go forward all the way to Revelation 21, verse 11, we read a description of the new Jerusalem, and there we read, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And so if a jasper was clear as crystal, and a modern jasper is anything but that, see, we have to conclude that we're talking about a very different stone than the one we call a jasper today. See, that would mean that a jasper that is crystal clear and brilliant, well, some suggest that it might be referring to a diamond. And then the carnelian is a blood redstone, and some have suggested, therefore, that a jasper is symbolic of the holiness and purity of God, and that a carnelian is symbolic of God's wrath and judgment of evil. And that might be right. But then John says he sees a rainbow the color of an emerald surrounding the throne. The rainbow, of course, reminds us of Genesis 9, where the rainbow was a sign of God's covenant that he would not destroy the earth with a flood again. And so, if you can imagine colors that speak of first the holiness and the purity of God, then his righteous anger and judgment against evil, and all the while surrounded by a symbol of mercy. See, all colors in perfect balance with each other. That's what emanates from the throne of God. And then, Having described the one on the throne in holiness, in wrath, and in mercy, John then describes 24 thrones with 24 elders seated on the thrones. They're, they're dressed in white. They have crowns on their heads. And again, as with the colors, we're called upon to contemplate what that might mean. A great many Bible teachers see the 24 elders as representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb, and thus, a figurative representation of the people of God in both Old and New Testaments. Now, in some ways, that seems to fit, because as you might remember, Jesus promised the church in Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10, to be faithful unto death, and they will receive what? The crown of life. And in chapter 3, verse 5, the church of Sardis is told that the one who conquers will be clothed in white, which is, of course, the color of the robes that these elders are wearing. And in chapter 3, verse 21, the church of Laodicea is told that the one who conquers will sit with him on his throne. And so from one perspective, all that seems to make sense. But on the other hand, there are reasons in which we might see the 24 elders as angelic beings rather than human beings. Well, for one, they seem to be among the four living creatures, not among human beings. Indeed, when we get to chapter 5, we see the 24 elders constantly grouped with the four living creatures. And when we come to chapter 7, verse 11, there we read, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And then in verse 13 we read, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? As if the elders are distinct from the martyrs of Jesus and the followers of Jesus. Furthermore, chapter 14 pictures the redeemed of the earth singing a song before the throne and before the elders. And finally, back in chapter 5, verse 9, the elders praise God for having ransomed people for God, almost as if they're making a distinction between themselves and the ones who have been redeemed. You know, it's for all those reasons and a lot more that I personally believe that the elders are God's council of holy angels. Now, as some of you might remember First Kings 22, verse 19, in which the prophet Micaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right and on his left. Or you might remember Psalm 89, verse 7, which calls God a god greatly to be feared in the council of his holy ones and that of course is referring to the angels and in colossians 1:16 the apostle paul speaks of the angels with thrones he says dominions and so forth in which he's referring to ranks among the angels and so from my perspective the 24 elders refer to the highest ranking of the angels surrounding the throne No doubt, they're great commanders who oversee the ranks of angels who constantly do the bidding of God. But John's still not done. In verse 5, he mentions flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder emanating from the throne. We should, as we try to visualize what John is describing, great ground-shaking booms of thunder and blinding flashes of light, kind of like what Israel saw during the time of the giving of the Ten Commandments, when the glory of God So came on Mount Sinai that the earth shook and the people trembled with fear. Imagine that. God is often accompanied by spectacular bursts in the created world. And then, John looks and sees seven torches of fire which symbolize the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, we will see the presence of the Lamb. And so, as we read through this account, we get a depiction of the Trinitarian nature of our God. And then around the throne is a sea of glass. You know, everyone who knows their Bible well will at this moment think of Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22. There, Ezekiel says, over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse shining like an awe-inspiring crystal. You know, John saw something exactly like that, a great sea of crystal or glass around the immediate throne. And so we get a picture of the God of holiness, the God of wrath, the God of mercy, around which are the council of his holy ones, his angels who await his bidding, but between the thrones and the angelic hosts, is a great expanse of brilliant crystal. See, the idea, of course, is that there is a great distance and separation between God and everything else in all creation, even between him and the holy ones who do his bidding. See, I wonder if right now, it's important for us to pause for a moment and try to take all this in. To the weary Christians in the seven churches who who might have been in danger of thinking the emperor in Rome was so overwhelmingly powerful, this scene should forever banish that idea. And for us in our day, we should see what the seven churches saw. Consider how often we find the pleasures of this world to be more attractive and capture our attention more than the living God who is seated on the throne. If we could only for a moment get our eyes off of our troubles and and, and our temptations and and our distractions and and our worldliness and, and catch a picture of the everlasting one seated on a throne, surrounded by his holy ones who do his bidding. Isn't it important for some of us, for just a moment, to get our eyes off ourselves and and our problems and our wants and desires, and for a moment be captivated by eternal holiness? Imagine, if you will, God. God in His glory, in His majesty, in His holiness, in His fierce, uncompromising, just wrath, and yet God who finds a place where mercy flows to us. Imagine God. You know, it's said of those who see the Grand Canyon for the first time that no one ever thinks, I'm so overwhelmed at how great I am. Now, instead, for just a moment, they seem lost in grandeur. But the Grand Canyon is but a ditch compared to the one seated on the throne. You know, perhaps the reason that you, dear friend, have become bored and complacent and maybe fearful and and, and rebellious and sitting and flirting with this world is because you've never imagined for one moment a reality that is greater than all other realities. Your imagination has been inspired by that which is for a moment and then passes away when the greatest of all realities is before you if you had but the eyes to see it. Think of the Christians in Ephesus who had lost their first love. Or those in Smyrna who had witnessed some of their own number killed for the faith. And think of the sexual temptations that attended Christians in the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira, or the dead church of Sardis, or the persecuted church of Philadelphia, or the hopelessly complacent church of Laodicea. See, what they all need is what we need. If we would but lift our eyes from our current cares and see where the glory resides, we would see the one who is seated on the throne.
0: John, that is a great picture of God, his grandeur, and and the opportunity we need to take to to look toward him. Uh, But I guess some question might be, did you get it all right? Is everything you're doing, everything you're saying like fit the picture perfectly? Does that really matter in the end, or is it more critical that we understand who Jesus is?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's the real issue. You've put your finger on it, Ben. For us, you know, I mean, especially when it comes to the, the 24 thrones that are around the throne of God— um, I, I do think that as I continue to read through Revelation that I think these are the angelic hosts or the, the captains of the Lord's armies. But let's just say for a second that I'm wrong, that it really refers to you know, uh, either the saints of God or the saints in the Old Testament, New Testament, or however you put that. And let's say I've got that wrong. It still doesn't change the picture as a whole we may have misunderstood one detail of the picture but the whole picture remains before us and the point is the same if we can just get our eyes off of ourselves and look to god everything changes i mean i I just kind of imagine all the time that that harassed group of churches in the roman province of asia and and the real word here is get
0: your eyes on god same for us that's a great message thanks so much john back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. It's happening. After a two-year break, Back to the Bible Canada is inviting you to join us February 2018 for a Celebration Caribbean cruise. One week of cruising the pristine waters, visiting beautiful island vistas, and most importantly joining the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, including Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests and new friends from coast to coast in a time of reflection, refreshment worship and fellowship with God's people. These events are incredibly popular, so don't hesitate to reserve your spot now and sail the Caribbean with Back to the Bible Canada. For cruise and registration information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And an important reminder to all of our Back to the Bible Canada supporters, no ministry funds are used to facilitate vacation events. The entire cost of the event is met exclusively by those who participate.